0: We're starting our study in the book of Revelation, but we won't be reading anything from the book of Revelation because it's an introduction to the book. So if you would, stand for reading of the Word of God and you will see where we will be. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So that's what we'll start with. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18 and chapter 5, 9 and 10. And as you know, this is the rapture verses, so we're going to be talking about the rapture kind of in depth here today. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel with the trumpet of god and the dead in christ will rise first and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the lord in the air thus we shall always be with the lord therefore comfort one another with these words that's 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 16 okay and now 1st Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 9 and 10 for god did not appoint us to wrath But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Now, Revelation, the title describes what it is. It's the revealing. It's the uncovering, the unveiling, the disclosure of future events. It's the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it is, the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wants us to know what's coming in the future. It's not a double super secret, okay? He wants us to know, and he's given us this book to help us to know. Irving Jensen, in his survey of the New Testament, says this, the book of Revelation is the climax of God's book, the last chapter of world history. The opening book of Genesis records the beginnings of the universe and race, and the closing book prophetically, this reveals prophetically the, the eternal new heaven and the new earth. Truly, a study of the Bible is incomplete without a study of the book of Revelation. And As you know, we've been through just about the entire New Testament, and we're f- coming to the end in the book of Revelation. Now I want you to realize the material that I'll be using. Paul Beck of Harpazo TV. He has a, there's a website, Harpazo TV, Paul D. Beck. He has a lot of great information that is very helpful for this. John Wolver, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Andy Woods, Teaching on the Book of Revelation. Don Coning, The Revelation of Jesus Christ Through the Ages. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, Footsteps of Messiah. Mark Hitchcock, The End. And The Preacher's Outline, Sermon Bible. These will be the majority of texts that I use, but there will be more than that. And of course, we'll rely on the Holy Spirit to actually illuminate Scripture to us. So. We are embarking on a concentrated study of eschatology. Big word simply means last thing. Study of last things. My goal in the teaching. Now, Paul Beck, Arnold Fruchtenbaugh, Mark Hitchcock are all going to have inputs. These will be excerpted from, from their material. To equip the local church of Calvary Chapel, Battle Creek with a high level of understanding of biblical eschatology, end-time study. Now, I want you to hear something. And please, as best you can, let this sink into your minds and never, ever, ever forget it. No one has all the answers when we talk about eschatology. If someone comes at you and says, this is it. And their, and their neck veins are sticking out, and that's no. It, we don't know exactly what's going to happen. We have a good idea, and I'll present to you what I believe is a good argument for how this thing is going to unravel and un, unwind. There are excellent Bible teachers who disagree on many portions of prophetic interpretation. All have in-depth knowledge of the Greek and the Hebrew, and still come to different conclusions. Do you hear that? They have the in-depth knowledge of Greek and Hebrew. They are seeking input of the Holy Spirit, but they come to a different conclusion. So a key point is, is very this is very significant. For any serious study of the Bible, do not blindly accept anything that any teacher has to say. Don't do that. Acts 17:11 is a key verse. Always be a Berean. What does that say? Now these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures. That's important. Your job is to search the Scriptures to validate what I am saying is true. You should do that with any teacher that you listen to. They search the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Now they search the Scriptures to make sure the teacher is rightly dividing the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15, that is my job, as best I can, to rightly divide the word of truth. Acts 20.27 says this, our our reliance is on the whole counsel of God in context. Avoid one-verse theology. Now, we want to exegete the text. We want to get from the text what God wants us to get from the text, not isogeist the text. Isogeist is you're making something say what you want it to say. That is predominantly what happens in Christendom today. There's a verse that's thrown up on the screen. The pastor will read the verse, and then he'll talk about everything around that verse and try to fit the verse into what he's teaching instead of the teaching being involved with the Word of God. So we exegete. We do an inductive study of the Bible. We observe the text who, what, when, where, why. We interpret the text in context. What does God want us to hear from this? We correlate the text. We compare it with other areas of Scripture to try to come up with what does God want us to learn from this. And then finally, the most I think the most significant is we apply the text. What does this mean to me today? It's great 2,000 years ago that they had this, but what does it mean to me today? That is the inductive method of Bible study. Now, it is important that the learner's marching orders are the following. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to what is good. Avoid every type of evil. 1 Thessalonians 5.21. Secondly, you must realize we're basing this on the Word of God. The Word of God. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. When I say God breathed, the Greek word is theo nuptos. Theo is God. Nuptos is breath, the breath of God. God breathed the breath of God on, on the writers. They wrote in their own genre. They wrote in their own ways. They each put it in a different way, but it was God breathed, and they were they were recording what God wanted them to record. That is what the scripture says. And then finally, we want, and this is, I think, so important today when we're living in a culture that wants to take us away from God. Take us away from the truths of God. And indoctrination into the culture is so heavy. So heavy. 24 7. Boom, boom, boom. An anti God, anti God worldview is coming at us on the continuum. Colossians 2 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies that depend on human tradition or the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Let no one take you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies. Remember, we have an enemy of our souls, and he is a deceiver, and he wants to deceive us and take us down a non-truth road. Now, presuppositions, presuppositions, something that we already... Uh, assume to be true beforehand presuppositions and I like this 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 comment the only barrier to truth is the presumption that you already have it. Be willing to learn, be willing to see things and again validate it with the Word of God. validate it with the word of God. So be teachable. now our, of course our foundation will be the Bible. The Bible, we believe the Bible is God's word, is the foundation of our study. This is is God's word to humanity. And, and I want to suggest to you, this word to humanity has been challenged from the beginning. Genesis chapter 3, when Satan said to Adam and Eve, has God thus said? Did God really say this? That's the question today with our culture. Not believing that this is the Word of God. And they come up with all kinds of reasons not to believe it. I'm going to show you why I think you should believe it momentarily. And we believe the Bible contains absolute truth and can be trusted. Now there's internal evidence for the Bible. 66 books. Not one book like the like like, like the Book of Mormon or one book like the Quran or the Hindu Vedas. 66 books, 40 authors, written over 1500 years, three languages, three continents with an integrated message with a, with a message to humanity that Jesus is that, that, that a Messiah is coming in the Old Testament and the New Testament Messiah has come and guess what Messiah is going to come again. Jesus Christ is going to come again. That is the message to us. So God chose a book to convey must know information to those on planet Earth. Bible prophecy authenticates his message to creation. The Old Testament, there were 330 prophecies concerning his first coming. And they all happened just like they were prophesied. No other world religion has one. 330 in the Old Testament and the entire Bible has 2,100 prophecies that speak of Jesus' second coming, his second coming. Christ's second coming deals with Christ establishing his kingdom. And his kingdom is a twofold kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. When you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, you enter into the spiritual kingdom of God, his, his rule, his, his, his sovereignty. The goal of redemptive history is God getting a message to you and you believing it and you becoming part of the spiritual kingdom of God. But there's also a physical kingdom, when Jesus will actually, literally rule on the earth for a thousand years. That's Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Now, the spiritual kingdom, again, it's a kingdom that you have to be born into. Jesus said in John 3:7, "You must be born again." And we hear that all the time in Christendom. It's like Christianese, but it's significant in that every human that is born on earth is born with a sin curse. We are born separated from God. We are born dead, dead in our trespasses and sins. That's Ephesians 2.1. The only way that we have life is by Jesus Christ dying on the cross for us. We believe that, and then our spirits come to life within us and allows us to commune with the holy God. We have to begin life. You must be born again. So there's a spiritual kingdom and there's a physical kingdom. Now, I believe that the Bible, and hopefully you do too, I think most people do here, is the inerrant, infallible Word of God that speaks to everyday life. And hear this, and this is important today, probably more so than any other time in the history of this country, because we have so much contrary information and contrary voices that we're being bombarded with. The Bible shapes one's worldview accurately and reveals where history is heading. Now, much of the world does not believe this. And many in the church don't believe this today. They believe that the Bible is full of errors, full of errors, full of mistakes, and it's impossible to transmit information accurately. The Bible has been, I think, adequately transmitted from the very beginning to our day today. In the original, it was inerrant. It has been passed down, and there has been errors. But when you do textual criticism, you will find that the Bible is 985 to 99% textually pure. There's no work of in antiquity that comes close to the accuracy of Bible transmission of Scripture. Scribes were meticulous in their transmission. The Bible, again, is 98.5% textually pure. None of the transmission errors affect any area of doctrine. Now, I want you to look at something with me. There will come on the screen to you an overhead, Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Now, these are works of antiquity, Homer, Herodotus, Plato, Caesar, etc. Notice when they were written, like Homer was 800 B.C., the earliest manuscript was 400 B.C., the time gap is 400 years. The time gap is is significant for each one of these until you get down to the New Testament. The Greek New Testament was originally written between 50 and 100 A.D. This is when the books of the New Testament were written. The earliest manuscript is 130 A.D. There's roughly about a 50-year time gap. There's over 5,800 Greek New Testament transmissions. There are also Syriac and Coptic transmissions and other transmissions. That's another eighteen thousand. Look, we have all kinds of, tra- of of information that has been transmitted to us. That when you compare them, they are remarkably the same. Remarkably the same. So, and again, people make their life's work of textual criticism. They want to examine this to be sure this is true, and it has bear it has borne up under intense scrutiny. Now, another thing I want you to think about is this. When we're talking about faith and we're talking about believing, what sort of faith do we really have? Now, a lot of people say, oh, you just have blind faith. You just believe in this. This is just blind faith. Well, let me tell you just a little bit about faith here. Unreasonable faith is believing in something in spite of the evidence. Blind faith is believing in something without any evidence. We don't believe that's what, what the study of the Scriptures is. Reasonable faith is believing in something because of the evidence and that we think that we have reasonable faith, reasonable reasons to believe what we believe. There's empirical evidence that we have. Again, no other work in literature has been so carefully and accurately copied as the Old Testament and the New Testament. Most of our modern day Bibles are based on a thousand year old manuscript. The Masoretic text is the Old Testament text. And people would have the argument, you cannot transmit information from point to point B through a whole bunch of people without there being errors. In 1000 AD, the Masoretics had a text. That was the most current one that we had in modern times. And so people would ma- maintain that argument that there has to be errors in there because humans just cannot transmit it accurately. And then there was a discovery in 1946 at Qumran in Israel. And when that Jewish guy threw the... Rock into a cave, broke a vase, and went in to explore, and had all these well-preserved documents. And they had information that was from 250 BC in the book of Ezekiel. And when they compared it with the Masoretic text, it was amazingly, amazingly accurate. The Masoretic text. As a matter of fact, it was 99% accurate. That the Masoretics had that copied almost word for word, 1,250 years prior, comparing the 1,250 to the Masoretics. It was incredible. God preserved His Word. We have the prophetic evidence, again, prophecy over and over coming to fruition, just as the Bible has said. We have archaeological discoveries, which I've mentioned prior to this. Lead archaeologist Nelson Glusick says this, It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a single Bible reference. It has confirmed the things that we see in our Bible. There's anecdotal evidence of truth. Look at the changed lives. Look at the Apostle Paul, who was a Christ-hater. He wanted to kill Christians. And he was killing Christians, imprisoning Christians, and then his life was radically changed on the road to Damascus, and he became a rabid Christ follower. That's anecdotal evidence. But also look at what's happened to societies. Please hear this. This is very significant. Before Christianity, there were cults that practiced all sorts of human sacrifice. This comes from from the notes of a guy named Leonard Sweet. They practiced self mutilation, self castration. The weak were destru- despised. The poor were maligned. The handicapped were abandoned. Christian infanticide was rampant, and there was all kinds of, uh, of sacrifice of children to false gods. Slavery was run of the mill. Gladiatorial combat in the circus, Nero circus, was common. Man's inhumanity, the man was off the charts. Aristotle, a Greek philosopher, not only condoned institutionalized slavery provided an elaborate argument for it. He also was a misogynist. He he did not think women should have anything equal. Aristotle called man begotten and woman misbegotten. And because a woman's reasoning was without authority, accepted no female students. Now contrast this with Christianity and Jesus Christ. Jesus and his followers, known as the church, insisted on the concept of human dignity and the value of every human soul. Only the church built hospitals, took care of the abandoned, the disabled. Only the church celebrated charity and selflessness as the highest virtue and elevated the status of women in the culture. People look at Christianity as being oppressive to women. No, no, Christianity freed women. You look at the rest of the world. You look at Hinduism. You look at Buddhism. Buddhism and and Islam and how they look at women. They are very second class, very second class. Believing what the Bible says is not blind faith. It's reasonable faith. And God has given humanity accurate information about what He wants us to know. Another thing I want you to think about is this think about this. If you believe, and I do believe, that God created the universe, He created the stars, the galaxies, the whole solar system, and the intricacy of the, of all those heavenly bodies moving at breakneck speeds, everything well-coordinated and organized because that's how God is organized, the macro-creation all the way down to the cell, the intricacy of the cell, the DNA, the absolute encoded information that we have that allows us to function as humans, allows us to see, hear, smell, breathe. If God can do that, He can very easily get accurate information in a book to His people. Which do you think is the biggest miracle? Creating everything and keeping it all going or getting you a book that He wants you? He can do this. He can do this. I mentioned a worldview. A worldview is this. It's the lens in which one looks through to determine what is true. And what is what is not true? In short, it's how an individual views their world. A worldview attempts to answer four basic questions. Every human has to deal with this. And you will have dealt with this at some point in your life. You get to the point: who am I? Who am I? We got all these billion. Who am I in the midst of all these billions of people on earth? Who am I? It speaks of purpose, folks. That we have a purpose. How did I get here? How do they get here at this time? It speaks of origins. It speaks of God putting us in in positions and places at specific times. So, how did we get here? Origins. And then, why am I here? Why in the world do I have weight and occupy space? Why do I even matter? Why am I even here? Well, I think you're here for one reason, and that is to come to know the God of creation through Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. That's why we're born into this world. We're born to know Him to serve him and to tell other people about him and to live righteously here as an example of him being in us. Where am I going when I die? That's the final thing. We believe in heaven and hell as Christians. That if you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, the greatest gift that anybody could ever have, he just offers it to us. and says, please take this gift. Please take this. He says, oh, please take it. And everybody goes, no, I don't want that. I want my own way. It's the greatest gift of all is eternal life that God offers us through his Son. I believe that Christianity answers these questions better than any other worldview. And I want you to think about something. There's no place that you can go in this world that people do not have eternity printed on their being. You go to, you go to the East, and they, there's religions that are looking at something else. There's, we, there's something more than this. If this just doesn't end here where we're, we're dust in the earth, it's not what it's, that's not what they believe. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says this, God has put eternity in the hearts of people. God has done that. No matter where you go, there are many worldviews. There are secular worldviews. There's an Eastern religion worldview. There's New Age. There's Wiccan. There's Muslim. There's Hindu. There's Buddhist. There's atheist. There's Christian, etc. The question that each of us must answer is which worldview is correct? They can't all be correct. They're all different. They can all be wrong. You have to do the the research. You have to do the journey. You have to get on the road to truth. And I believe the Christian worldview is the correct worldview. There are many worldviews today. Which is correct? Your answer to that question has eternal consequences. Eternal consequences. Jesus claimed exclusivity, didn't he? When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father except by me. He's claiming exclusivity. He never said, choose your own road. See, postmodern today is your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. Hey, who knows what truth is? You go to the truth tree and you pick off a truth leaf, and that's what I'll believe today. Oh, no, we believe that there is absolute truth, and and it's in our God. It's in our God. It's not in us making up truth as we go along our merry way through life. Choose your worldview, choose your truth, choose your way. Jesus never said that. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And remember, that door is wide open. He desires that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. But there's only one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. And believe me, humanity cringes at this. You look at people today and you say the exclusivity of Jesus and it is offensive to people. It is offensive and it is just it just raises their hair in the back of their necks. People cringe. Why? Because people generally do not want to submit to God. They want their own way. I'm an American. I'm free. I can choose my own way. You can choose your own way, but if it's not through Jesus Christ, It's the wrong way. You can be very sincere, again, but be sincerely wrong. I did it my way is not going to get you to heaven. We are here to study the philosophy of history presented in the Bible. We're here to study how God has created, how he's documented what is going to happen. Remember, history is his story. It's his story. And again, prophecies have been fulfilled, and they come 100% predictive prophecy is what we have in our in our scripture. A hundred percent. And I'll tell you, this stymies atheists. This stymies other world religions, because they have none. They have no answer for this. And remember how a person believes has consequences. If you have good beliefs, proper beliefs, great consequences. If you had bad beliefs, you're on the wrong road, you have bad consequences. It's all about the Lord Jesus. There's an eternity, there's a heaven, there's a hell and folks after this life There is no second chance. This is it. (laughs) This is our time. Do the research. Ask God to reveal himself to you, and he will. He will. Get on the truth road. Many have taken this journey, folks, and many have been convinced that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. The only way. Now, I want to take another little journey here. The next event on the eschatological scale eschatology remember last days end time okay is the rapture of the church 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 16 and 17 say this for the lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of god and the dead in christ will rise first then we who are alive and remain shall be Caught up. That's the Latin word rapturo, means rapture. It is the Greek word harpazo. We'll get to that in just a second. We caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, I want you to notice in your Bible, if you have a study Bible, chapter 5, it might have in the heading there, Day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is when Jesus takes back planet Earth. It is a period of time. So what I think is happening here is a rapture is mentioned first, and the church is taken out, and then we go into the day of the Lord, where Jesus has taken back planet Earth. And then he says in verse 9 and 10, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to attain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is very significant, because in the tribulation, the wrath of God is being poured out, I believe, from the first seal judgment all the way through the bowl judgments. And we'll get more into that. You'll understand that better as weeks go on. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. I'll include verse 11. Therefore, comfort each other. Comfort each other. You don't. We're not going to go through the wrath. Comfort each other. And edify, build one another up, just as you also are doing. The rapture of the church, the subject of the rapture, you must hear this, is one of the strangest subjects in Christendom, okay? Causes a lot of consternation with people, and there's different views on it. And it's still Christian, okay? Uh, you, you can believe we're all in this body. This would be an in-house argument, so to speak. The word means to be caught up. The Greek term is harpazo, to be forcibly caught up. And I believe it's the next event within God's prophetic plan. Now, there are different views of the rapture, different views of the rapture. There's pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation means there's not really a rapture. Jesus comes, you're caught up, and you come right back down. Pre-wrath partial rapture. Bible students differ on the timing of the rapture and are still Christian. We can still fellowship with people that disagree about this, okay? That's an important thing to remember. A question to ask yourself, though, is this, and I think it's a great question. Are we looking for Christ to return or are we looking for the Antichrist? And I would suggest to you only the pre-tribulation rapture view Looks for Christ to return, and not the Antichrist. If you would, on the screen is going to be an Andy Woods rapture view comparison, and you will notice the different views of the rapture. The pre-tribulation rapture, we believe, or at least I believe, happens before the seven-year tribulation period. We're caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and then we go through the, seven year, the seven-year tribulation period. We have exited. We're not part of this. We're not part of the wrath of God, and we return. For the thousand year millennium. Mid tribulation, Marv Rosenthal popularized this view. And in the middle of the tribulation, at the three and a half year point when Antichrist sets himself up in the temple to be worshiped as God, then the church is taken out and the wrath of God is the last part of this three and a half years. Okay? And then you come back. Post tribulationism believes that you get raptured at the very end when Jesus comes back and you. You get caught up together in the air, and then you make a U-turn, and you come back down. So you get up, and you make a U-turn, and you come back down, and you go into the millennium. And then there's a pre-wrath rapture, and this is becoming more and more and more popular today. Many people have embraced this. Many pre-tribulationists have turned to this view. It means there's no wrath of God in the first part of this, all the way over to almost the very end, literally months before God pours out his wrath on the earth. They believe that this is not the wrath of God, this is the wrath of Antichrist. So you'll have to live through this until God pours out his wrath, and since the church is not going to be going through the wrath of God, they get exited at the very end, just literally months before the end, and then come back. And then there's another view that is not on here, it's called a partial rapture. A partial rapture, some people believe that if you are living for Christ and you're a really solid, all-out Christian, you get to go. But if you have some carnal stuff going on in your life, you have to stay to go through this. That is something that I don't believe is is right. But I want to show you just a little bit, another little slide on the on the pre-wrath rapture. Again, the sealed judgments, you'll notice when we do our study in chapter six of Revelation, that there's a great earthquake. People are hiding themselves and they use the language Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. And so at least you know that the wrath is here in chapter 6 of Revelation. Now I believe the wrath of God, if it starts here in the first part of the tribulation. I'll make an argument for that once we get here. But the wrath of the Lamb, at least the word usage is used here in chapter 6. Notice that you're going through most of this, at least over half of the three and a half year great tribulation. The worst time ever. In just a few months, for the trumpet and the bold judgments, that is what more and more people are going towards. I don't embrace that view, but I respect a lot of Bible teachers that teach this view. So I want you to at least be aware of these different views. Again, all Christians, all in the body of Christ, looking at this a little bit differently, but I think we'll be able to make a pretty good argument for a pre-tribulation rapture. Now. Are we looking forward to the worst time in history of planet Earth? The carnage, the destruction, the human misery is off the charts with Antichrist. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 21, lest these days be cut short, it's gonna the tribulation, it's be, the crushing will be so awful that no flesh will be saved alive. Now, my question is, how can we comfort one another if we're going through three-fourths of this or 80% of it, or 90%? How do we comfort one another? Oh, it's almost there. Just another two years to go. Here we go. You just bear up as they're killing your kids, and they're killing. There's going to be lots of death in this thing. It's going to be the worst time in the history of planet Earth. Or are we looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus? Titus 2:13. Folks, we can comfort one another with the blessed hope that we're not going to be here. Is our blessed hope the rapture? Or is it the second coming? Now, there's another thing here from Andy Woods. He does a good job with these overheads. Comparing the rapture of the church with the second coming. Again, we read the rapture verses, second coming verses are Revelation 19, 11 through 16. We've read those in our Daniel study numerous times. But there is a difference between these two. Christ comes in the air in the rapture. Christ, We meet Him in the air. Christ comes to earth at the second coming. He comes for his saints in the rapture. We come back with him at the second coming. Rapture is a blessing. The second coming is going to be a judgment for those on earth. The rapture affects only believers. The second coming, there's going to be believers on earth at that time who survived the tribulation, but it's going to be awful for the unbelievers. The rapture is invisible in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. Remember, it's fast. It's invisible. When Jesus comes back in Revelation 1-7, the second coming, every eye will see him. Remember when he ascended into heaven in in Acts 1-9. This same Jesus will come in like manner. He's going to become visible. He's going to come down to the earth. Every eye will see him. Big difference. The rapture is announced by an archangel and the trump of God. There's a lot of noise here. This one's the second coming. The angels are going to be coming back with us to earth. There's no trump. There's not a lot of noise. There's just Jesus coming back, and everybody's going, as they're seeing this thing. The rapture, there will be a resurrection. The resurrection. There's no resurrection here with the second coming. And the rapture is the rescue of the church, and the second coming is the rescue of Israel. There's a big difference between the second coming and the rapture. And again, the rapture is fast. The twinkling of an eye and the second coming is slow. How can we comfort one another if we have to live through the tribulation period or most of it? We just can't do that. It's going to be awful. Now, there are some scriptures that talk about the rapture. First is the promise. The promise is in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Remember, Jesus said, in my Father's house are many rooms or dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you so. And I go to prepare a place for you. Then he will come again to take us to Father's house that we will be with him. That is very different than going from here to the air, back to earth. We skipped Father's house with that, if you're looking at it that way. Only the, pre-trib- only the rapture tells us we're going from here to there to Father's house, and then we come back. Then we come back. The process we looked at 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we're caught up to the, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The purpose is in 1 Corinthians 15, 50, and 55, we get resurrected bodies because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The prophetic profile, what are we going to look for, is in 2 Thessalonians 2.3, The apostasy comes first. Now, what is the apostasy? We went over this in the Daniel study very frequently. It is the church falling away from the tenets of the faith. The church being indoctrinated and embracing worldviews that are not biblical. That is the apostasy. But looking, looking religious, looking spiritual, looking wonderful, but not the truth. That's the falling away. And then the man of lawlessness is revealed, the Antichrist. And I believe that we should have enough discernment to be able to see the Antichrist because, remember, he rises slowly. He doesn't just spring on the scene and go, I'm here to save the world. Oh, no. We learned in our Daniel study over and over and over that he rises to power slowly. And he sneaks in, and he looks like a great guy, looks like a wonderful guy, He deceives the whole world, and then he sets himself up in the middle of the tribulation to be worshipped as God. And then the Jews know, exit stage left, get out of here, and they run to Petra. If you were here in our study in Daniel, you will know exactly what that means. So, Mark Hitchcock points something out very interesting in his book, The End. He says this, in Revelations chapters 1 through 3, the church is mentioned 19 times. But in chapters 4 through 18, talking about chapters 4 and 5 are our vision of heaven, and then 6 through 18 are the tribulation period. Nothing is mentioned about the church. The church is conspicuously absent. It's not present during that time. Arnold Fruchtenbaum in his footsteps of Messiah gives us some interesting facts about the book of Revelation. He says this, the book of Revelation has no direct quotations from the Old Testament, but has 550 references to the Old Testament. And the the biggest references are to the book of Daniel, and that's why we studied Daniel before Revelation. So we would have a clue on what's going on. There are also uh, references from Zechariah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and the Psalms. Now, a lot of people ask the question, when you're going through the Old Testament and you see all these prophecies that are going on, and they wonder how can you put all this together with all these guys writing at different times? and How do we put all these prophecies together about what's coming in the future? Well, Revelation does that. The book of Revelation takes prophecies scattered throughout the Old Testament, puts them in an order that the sequence of events can be determined. We can have an idea of what's going on. Now, in any good introduction, you're going to have to have the date, the destination, the background, and that sort of thing. So Revelation was written by John the Apostle in 96 A.D. He wrote it on the island of Patmos where he was exiled for his Christian stand. That's Revelation 1.9. Now, I want you to think about something. 96 A.D. is a very important date because there are folks in Christendom that believe the book of Revelation was written before 70 A.D. It was written at a time, uh, these would be preterists, all these things that happened in the book of Revelation happened at the time Nero destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Nero would be a picture of the Antichrist. All the carnage that you see in the book of Revelation would be the tribulation period. Now, they're, they're missing a lot of stuff because there's all kinds of celestial stuff that goes on, all kinds of amazing things that go on that did not happen at that time. It's impossible for that view to be true, but there's a huge portion of Christendom that believes that. That's called preterism. Now, why, why what evidence do we have that it was 96 AD? Well, Irenaeus was an early church father. Listen to the name, Iranius. He lived from A.D. 120 to 202. He was a disciple of Polycarp. Now, these words aren't going to mean anything to you, but Polycarp was a disciple of John himself. So it went from John to Polycarp to Iranius. the information. Now, Iranius writes this, John had his vision of the apocalypse toward the end of Domation's reign. Domation is a Caesar in Rome. Domation reigned from 81 to 96 AD. So it had to be, it had to be past 70 AD. He was assassinated, and again the book of Revelation was not written pre-70 AD as the preterist claim. Now I want you to think about something. John was exiled, to the Isle of Patmos for a single reason. He believed that Jesus was the Christ. He believed that Jesus was the Christ. He didn't, he didn't instigate a revolution. He didn't cause trouble for the government. He didn't do anything illegal. It was simply for believing in Jesus Christ. And many, many in the history of the world have been martyred for that very reason, the simple thing of just believing in him. And then more so in the 20th century, Than any time before. Now, I have just kind of a crude map here of Turkey, the seven churches in Turkey, and then John being exiled by Domitian to the Isle of Patmos. Thought he could isolate him, take him out of circulation. Lo and behold, God, the Lord Jesus, gave him the revelation of Jesus Christ, which was then disseminated to these seven churches to tell them about. Tragedy is coming. Persecution is coming. But God is sovereign. God is in control. God rules. And they could not stop John's message from getting out. Why? Because God wanted it out. And you cannot stop the hand of God. No human can do that. So, schools of interpretation. The way that people view the book of Revelation is different. Some people look at it from the symbolic view. That Revelation is just a series of pictures teaching spiritual truths. They spiritualized the book of Revelation. Again, the preterist view, which is, which is quite popular, most of the church, uh, the, the standard denominations would be preterist. The Reformed church, the Presbyterian church, the Lutheran church, that sort of thing, would be preterist. And they, re- they believe that all of Revelation was historically fulfilled in the first century prior at 70 A.D. When, when Jerusalem was destroyed. Then there's the historic view. Revelation is a panoramic view of church history. And then there's the futurist view. That would be our view of it, that the events in chapters 6 through 22 are yet future. They literally depict people and events yet to appear on the world scene. And I think there's some good arguments for this. Now again, there are em- enormously gifted spiritual, Holy Spirit-filled people that look at this differently. We're struggling to just ferret out the truth for ourselves. Now, I to talk about millennialism. This is another significant thing. What is the millennium? The millennium is a thousand-year reign of Christ after the tribulation period where he establishes his kingdom and he rules on earth. Now, there are three views of the millennium. Number one is premillennialism. That means Christ will come to earth before the millennial reign. That is what we believe, that he comes to earth at the end of the tribulation period, sets up his kingdom, rules for a thousand years. Satan is bound. There's no satanic activity during that time. That will be Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. Postmillennialism, again, this is very popular. The second coming of Christ is at the end or after the millennium. The millennium is a period of time of blessedness and prosperity and well-being. According to this view, we are now living in the millennium. Now, isn't this just cheery? We are now living in the millennium. Now, the guy that started this view started in the 1600s, but it fell out of favor because if we're living in the millennium, we are ushering in the kingdom of God, and everything is supposed to get better and better and better, and more wonderful, and prepared for Jesus to return. The trouble is, that's not what Scripture says. Okay, Scripture says, as the days of Noah, so shall it be the second coming of Christ. When Jesus comes, per Jesus' words, it'll be so bad that the whole world's going to be destroyed if he doesn't come back. So it's not getting, I don't know where they get this, but that's a view. Now, I want you to know that that fell out of favor again in World War I and World War II when people are looking at the world and going, well, this is silly. We can't. This is not getting better, okay? But now, in our era of time, there has been something called the New Apostolic Reformation, kingdom theology, theonomy, where there's going to be dominion. where We're making the world better and better and better, and I'll tell you, New Apostolic Reformation churches are booming because they're talking about signs and wonders and miracles being performed, that God is even raising the dead. These are the churches with gold dust coming down, Holy Spirit clouds, that sort of thing. They believe in apostles and prophets. The apostles of Christ have been reproduced at this time for this epoch of time. This is false. Prophets, like the Old Testament prophets, hearing ex cathedra from God, without any mistakes. The problem is, their prophets make all kinds of mistakes, and then they have to change how they view their prophets as, well, they're just learning prophets, and so they they have to learn by making mistakes. That is not what the Bible says. If you're a prophet, you're going to be shooting your mouth off to be a prophet, then you better be 100% correct. Okay, so that, that view, I think, is wrong. And then there's amillennialism, where there's no little reign of Christ on your earth, no millennium. Now again, this a lot of people believe in this. The Roman Catholics believe this, the Greek Orthodox, the Reformed Church, the Lutheran Church, all deny a seven-year tribulation period. That they believe that God is done with Israel, that Israel doesn't have a plan in God's eyes. Now it's just the total church. okay? So they, they, they believe in a spiritual reign of Christ in the hearts of men, but don't believe in a real millennial reign of Christ. And actually, just, just anecdotally, Hitler believed this in World War II, and the Lutheran Church was predominant in Germany. And this was one of the causes for the slaughter of six million Jews because they were Christ killers, they were inhuman, and they didn't deserve to live. That was the view of amillennialism and replacement theology. Conclusion, things to think about. When all is said and done, every person who has believed God and believed in Jesus Christ as their Savior will have resurrected bodies and will go into the eternal kingdom with God. They will dwell with God forever. Those who reject Jesus Christ, say, I don't want you. I don't want your way. I'll have my own way, Jesus. They're going to reject him. They'll end up, unfortunately, it's a tragedy of tragedies, in the lake of fire, separated from God forever in, in the torment. And Jesus said he was very specific. He talked a lot about hell. Don't go there. Anything don't if you have to cut off your arm, don't go there. If you have to pluck out your eye, don't go there. By don't go there. It's terrible. Don't go there. But many people just say, I don't want you, Jesus. I don't want your rescue. I'll do it my way. The marching orders for the true church are clear. True Christianity, folks, is active, not passive. You are here for a reason. You have life and breath for a reason. You have a purpose. Jesus Said to them in John twenty twenty one, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. It's active. I send you. Active. Acts one eight, we're to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. It's active. He said in Mark sixteen fifteen, go into the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Preach the gospel to all. Cre-. It's active. Then there's repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. It's active. And then finally, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you and lo, I am with you always even to the end of it. It's active. It's active. Christianity is not passive. Christianity is not entertainment. Just go and entertain me. Make me feel real. It's active. It's involvement. The book of Revelation will tell us what to expect as our world winds down, how things will end, and that there is a new world coming. God wants everyone to be part of his new world. The invitation goes out to all. It's simply believe and receive. Believe and receive the gift of salvation. I want you to think of this. We are still here. Each one of us are still here for a purpose. We still have the honor and privilege of serving our Lord. And the scripture is clear. That is what God expects from us. Don't waste your life. Engage in things that will last for eternity. You're abs- you'll be absolutely thrilled. you be absolutely ecstatic that you said yes to Jesus Christ. Next week, our Revelation journey begins in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Selah. You know what Sila means? 71 times in the Psalms it says, pause. And think. Do some introspection. Allow the Holy Spirit to probe your heart and prepare for the journey of your life as we study the book of Revelation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us, again, to study the Word of God, the true Word of God. And Lord, I pray that this Word will penetrate the veneer, the outer coverings, the the shell that we have over us. Pierce the heart, Lord. Take the scales off. Help our minds to be clear. Change the way that we think about you. Draw us closer and closer to you. For people that don't know you as their Savior, I pray today will be the time they say yes to the Lord Jesus Christ. They believe and receive the gift of salvation. Lord, we have one chance at this. It's a time called our life. And I pray that the eyes of our understanding will be enlightened so that we will know. What is the hope of our calling? I know that you speak to every heart, that you speak to us differently at different times. Even in a talk like today, you've spoken to us, each person, differently. Help us to hear what you want us to hear today individually. Again, thank you for this time to study the true word of God. In Jesus' name, amen.